politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minimans standing at the ready to fight for our life and liberty and property in the way that matters at the time that matters. If that is your goal, this is your show. Daniel Hurwitz back here in the house for Friday at Blaze Media. And it is the best of times. It is the worst of times. Boy, there's never been a more exciting time to be alive. There's also never been a more perilous time to be alive. The question is, how do we utilize and harness that excitement to rectify the peril we're in? In other words, you know where I'm headed on this. It's the thesis we've been using the last week or so. We're going to continue into Election Day and and beyond. It's an exciting time to, to be alive. Democrats that did horrible things to us as human beings, as a country, a lot of them are about to be punished politically at least, get swept out of office. And then Elon Musk waltzes into Twitter overnight, takes it over. I mean, my account... My account still has not been restored, but the presumption is I guess it will at some point in the next few days or week or whatever. At RM Conservative, I will be back up. And there's never been a better time to be alive if you're a conservative blabbermouth, right? It's it's great. I mean, you go from being uh, cut off for saying the truth, and now it's, it's a lot of fun. Twitter's a lot of fun. You get to say whatever you want, the truth, and you know the left is going crazy, and there's nothing they can do about it. Drink their tears, you know, because to the left, a level and fair playing field is tantamount to fascism. And, and, and it's tantamount to a living hell. And they're not wrong. It is a living hell for them. Because their immoral, inhumane, illogical insanity cannot thrive even with 1% dissent. They have to have 100% control over society and media, not 99%. It's not enough. So I don't blame them. So our guys are just really happy, and it's exciting. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the ban from Twitter was devastating. That was my only social media. Um, Let's just say it's not like anyone else promotes me. So my brand and what I'm trying to accomplish, which is unlike other people, not just myself, but really uh, all these ideas that we have, it was like a nuclear bomb dropped on me. It, it, It crushed my career. So it's a big deal if I get restored. But it's not an end. Twitter is not an end. Twittering is not an end. Politics is not an end to itself. It's a means. Now what are you going to do with it? That's our goal here. I don't want to put a damper on it. I am very excited. It's precisely because I believe that we never had such a great opportunity to do what's right is why we cannot afford to squander that opportunity. That's the point. Think about it. We're sort of like, let's say, the Confederate army. You had this huge asymmetry between the two, David versus Goliath. And they were shocked that they were able to defeat the Union at that first battle of Manassas. And it's easy to just celebrate and dance around. We're good to go. We're good to go. But Stonewall Jackson said, wait a minute. Give me 10,000 men. I'll, wa- I'll march on Washington. I'll end the war before it begins. And in retrospect, that was probably the only way they could have won. 
And no, for the left that's listening, I'm not cheering on the Confederacy. I'm just using an analogy from warfare, from history. Um, what What is evident here is that it's not enough to drink the liberal tears. We can't afford to miss an opportunity. Despite being restored on Twitter, despite the left assuming they're going to get crushed in the election, that does not automatically change any of the problems that we face. You now have to use that to actually fight for it. And my concern is, with most conservative pundits, punditry, Twitter, politicking is an end to itself. It satiates their innate human desire to achieve some sort of accomplishment in their career and their lives, and that's enough. But that in itself didn't solve anything. Now let's stay focused. Remember, all the Democrats, not all of them, but a, a number of them that did this to us, they'll get at least politically punished. A lot, of, a lot of them need to be criminally punished. But remember, most of the Republicans that did this to us are going to remain in office. In fact, the ones that went along with all of this, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, will be the leaders of this new Congress. And most of the new crop of people coming in, especially the higher the office you get, are of the same ilk. You know, the lower down you get state legislature, particularly state houses. There's definitely an unprecedented amount of good people coming in, and we need to utilize that, that opportunity. But just remember, it won't fix itself on its own. It's not self-executing. It's not like, oh... Well, of course, the Democrats got crushed. The people are clamoring for this. They want change. Left to their own devices, the GOP leaders in these states will convene their legislative sessions as if none of this happened. Hey, let's focus on the garbage collection. Let's focus on our typical pay-for-play you know, business priorities. Let's maybe cut some taxes, which is often not a bad idea, but like, really, that's where it's at? This is why... My focus is going to be all hands on deck, all hands on deck to uh, to convert this potential energy into kinetic and actually, you know, save people. I'll be in a great position, be an exciting time to be alive for my career, but it doesn't help all the people that are suffering as a result of these policies. They won't change on their own. So that's going to be more next week. We'll follow up on that. But I wanted to do a special show this week uh, for today. And we're going to have a, a special guest coming up to talk about this two-tier justice system, to talk about the persecution of whites, to talk about the lie of George Floyd and everything that it represents. And just before we give... Um, before we have our guest on, I want to preface with an article I wrote on this today. And by the way, I'm going to have another article coming out, which is probably the most comprehensive uh, illustration analysis of the potential GOP domination in state governments. I handicap kind of you know, what's going on in all the states, uh, and it's out there. Republicans could literally pick up 30, 31 trifecta controls. Um, potentially 35 governors even, and you know almost as many or just as many state legislative chambers. This is a big deal. 
Now, most of them are good for nothing. But if you harness not just the red wave, but the red mandate and the sentiment of the people, I believe there is a lot we could accomplish. But on the other article I wrote today, I referenced this before, that kind of like you're seeing on Twitter today, where to the left, a level playing field is fascism. Meaning, not censoring the right is tantamount to censoring the left. Even though Elon Musk is not promising at all, even giving an inkling like he's going to do back to them what they did to us. In fact, he's promising not to do that. They are free to continue saying what they want. But, but to them, that's fascism. So long as they don't get to do it. Same thing like they could wear a mask, but that's not enough. If you're not forced to wear it, that's tantamount to fascism, like taking away my right to wear a mask, even though you could still do it. That's their mindset. So it's a similar thing here that our protected speech is violence, and their violence is protected speech. So the Minneapolis City Council voted to settle with 12 BLM rioters and give them a $700,000 payout. Who are these rioters? If you remember, two years ago, we talked about this horrific case of uh, BLM got a hold of I-35 in Minneapolis. I mean, it's a major, the major uh, interstate there, and they just blocked it. And on the I-35 West Bridge, there was a tanker truck that got in because, and he was almost prosecuted himself because evidently he should know that BLM set up a checkpoint and you're not allowed to go on the highway. And they pulled him, and they surrounded it, pulled him out of the uh, car and almost beat him to death. And he was charged, and and it was dropped, but it's unbelievable. And no one who did anything to him got punished, but it's worse than that. It turns out 12 of the people that were on there, they're now, they, they, they sued the Minneapolis police for brutality for pepper spray. Okay, I mean, classic crowd control, riot control, they had the right to do that, no one would deny that. Everyone knows that the Minneapolis cops were weak as anything, literally allowed them to burn down a police station. We'll talk about that with our guest. Um, destroy 800 buildings, you name it. This much, they blocked the highway, were about to lynch a guy, they threw some pepper spray, and they're suing. So the city is voting to pay them out. Yeah, I mean, these guys are, are victims. And in this piece, I just try to illustrate a powerful juxtaposition to January 6th where people were singing God Bless America on, uh, you know, on the, not inside the Capitol, outside. It was a permitted rally. It was, it was you know, planned long before. They had the right to be there. They were beaten and pepper sprayed and when they didn't do anything. See, you can't say, you can't even say like, okay, I wasn't one of the guys who was about to lynch the truck driver. I was just there because being there is a prima facie crime. You can't sit on a highway like that. You can't block a highway. Whereas here, you have the right to protest the Capitol. None of them will be compensated. Not only weren't they compensated, they are thrown in jail pre-trial indefinitely for two freaking years and are facing years in prison. So, I mean, we could, we could talk about many of these stories, but you just juxtapose to Ryan Nichols. Ryan Nichols, is the he was a Marine search and rescue specialist. 
he was actually on Ellen DeGeneres. She gave him money when she found out that, you know, when he retired from the Marine Corps, he used his skills to rescue uh, people and dogs from uh, floods and hurricanes and tornadoes. I mean, great guy. Great guy. And he is charged with, all he did was he had a crowbar. He didn't use it. And he discharged pepper spray. No one is is was injured. He didn't lay a hand on a cop, but he's charged with assaulting law enforcement. And he was actually protecting other people from what the cops were doing and also holding back the violent people, too, that were being violent, most of whom were either Antifa or the FBI agents or informants. He literally did nothing. You know, there's a handful that, you know, certainly disproportionately punished, but did something wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. He is one of the ones that is being held to this day. He's there. Ryan Nichols. So we talked about how this guy, uh, first of all, you had Brayson Gibson in Minneapolis that knocked out a cop with a metal trash can lid. He didn't serve a day in prison. Not pre-trial, not post-trial. He got a year of home detention. And unlike Ryan, who was an honorable guy, not only didn't have a criminal record, had an amazing life, served the country, both as a civilian and, and a Marine Corpsman, Marine Corpsman, um, he, uh, he was accused of stealing from Home Depot 10 times and threw, throwing large rocks at a police car. So it wasn't just, okay, one moment. He was doing that the whole time. Those charges were dismissed as part of the plea deal to get one-year home detention. The worst thing ever imaginable was the guy who burned down, the lead guy in burning down the 3rd Precinct police station. Burned it to the ground. It's not just that he was caught on video with a Molotov cocktail. He used it and succeeded in burning down the police station. He got 27 months. No pretrial detention, but 27 months. And the judge said that he sympathized with him. He knows that he's fundamentally a good person, just made a terrible mistake that day. And he sympathized with the cause. Yeah, I understand that the Floyd motivated you. You have a guy like Ryan Nichols, who was universally a good person, no criminal record, nothing in the past, and was just caught with certain quasi-weapons, and there's no evidence he did anything bad with them. And indeed, that's why he wasn't arrested on the spot. If you beat up a cop, you would have been arrested. It was ex post facto in the witch hunt of, of Facebook snitchers that said, oh, he said Pelosi's a this, he did that, he... Well, okay, well, where's the crime? And then they just placed him at the scene, they just arrested him. Well, what do you, he, he didn't do anything. Guy who burned down the police station got 27 months. This other guy, um, Matthew Bledsoe from Tennessee, he entered the Capitol for 22 minutes and shouted, this is our house, we pay for this SHIT, where's those pieces of SHIT? He didn't burn, break, or steal anything or attack anyone. 22 minutes in a public building, four years in prison, plus he had a, at least a certain degree of pretrial holding. This other animal... Uh, Michael Bryce Williams, the leader of the attack that burned down the police station, was a good person, got 27 months. You can't share a country with these people. Keep that in mind. 
That's what we're up against. This is not going to be rectified by a couple of cute, snarky tweets that don't get censored or just winning an election with 90% of Republicans who literally do not get this, understand it, or agree with what I, what I just said. So over the past that, two and a half let's years, let's zoom out a little broader and get to our special guest. We've gone through each of the catalyzing, civilization-changing, great reset events, and we've delved into not just the outcome, the aftermath, how they were illogical, immoral, illegal, inhumane, but we delved into the source of it, the actual event itself and the lies surrounding them. We all now understand, at least most of the lies, not the full extent, of the genesis of COVID, the planning behind it, as well as what they sought to achieve and indeed did achieve with it. What they sought to achieve and what they planned with January 6th. Okay, COVID criminalized our bodies. J6 was designed to criminalize our political beliefs broadly. Then we had Ukraine. That was also a setup and was designed to do what they did with COVID on healthcare to do it with food and fuel. But what was the other big catalyzing event? BLM. That catalyzed the two-tier justice system while it was already there, but certainly exacerbated it, criminalized essentially whiteness, criminalized police and police work, and created this, this hierarchy, this just unjust, immoral hierarchy that flies in the face of equality under the law. And as we noted, it seems like everything they do that instantly has a unified, earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting effect had to have been either planned or there's something funny about the incident itself that we don't know about. So we've obviously, obviously talked a lot about BLM and the aftermath and what it's done. It's pretty clear what, you know, what they're doing with it. But what actually happened on the day itself? Now, it, it shouldn't necessarily matter because, again, even if Derek Chauvin woke up that day and said, I am going to be brutal to someone, and even particularly, I'm going to find the first black person and suffocate him to death, that still wouldn't warrant anything they did, and it would implicate nobody but the individual who did it. And it doesn't change the fact that, in general, police underutilize force against violent criminals, the justice system under-incarcerates violent criminals, and the whole racial disparity thing is actually a complete lie and always was, and is, is the exact opposite of what they say. That would still be true. Now, we know that's not what happened, at a minimum, but what did happen with, with Derek Chauvin, the cops, the other three cops that day, the trial? What happened in general from the moment this hit the airwaves in Minneapolis? So with us today is a very special guest, Liz Collin. She's an Emmy Award-winning reporter and anchor. She was with WCCO in Minneapolis for, for like a dozen years and was fired right after the Floyd incident. Well, you'd think, well, man, what did she, what did she say? Well, she didn't say anything. It was simply because her husband, Lieutenant Bob Kroll, was president of the Minneapolis Police Union, and uh, she had to be sacrificed to the wolves like a lot of things did. She's now with Alpha News, a terrific local uh, conservative news outlet. Uh, I, really, every locality needs, needs an Alpha News. I, I've used a lot of their stuff for my articles in the past. And she's out with a new book I want you guys to get and check out. 
They're lying. The media, the left, and the death of George Floyd. Go to theliexposed.com, theliexposed.com. Terrific URL there. You could follow her at Liz Collin with two L's on Twitter. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today for the first time on Blaze Media. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity, and what a great, what a great lead-in to all of this. Um, there was definitely a lot more at play uh, than, than we were told in the beginning. So it, it's uh, pretty freeing to kind of be able to finally get the, the story out there, the, the story that I witnessed uh, play out in my, in my front yard on a couple different uh, occasions as well. But um, sadly, I think we're all living with the consequences of this movement that kind of began in Minneapolis um, because we had the perfect uh, politicians, the perfect people in place uh, to push this narrative that was alive from the very beginning. And, and it's very apropos we're doing this now as polls are coming out, finally, finally showing, I mean, how could the people just suffer all of this uh, between the lockdowns and the rioting and just vote to reelect the same people? So maybe that is about to change. Um, maybe there are still uh, 10 righteous men in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, formerly called Minnesota Nice. But let's start off, Liz, with... With that aftermath, I want to give people people a sense, so we're going to work backwards, the aftermath, and then we'll get to your interviews with Derek Chauvin himself, his mother, some of the other officers, the lawyers, people involved. But I, I want to get a sense of the atmosphere, the atmosphere politically, media-wise, immediately following it that we never really saw historically where, you know, even if the worst allegation is true of that individual uh, in, uh, person and the incident, how an entire race or class of people or cops are suddenly suspect as criminals. Talk about the circumstances of you being fired as a well-known news anchor in uh, in Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah, and just to um, to back up a bit, I was I was an anchor um, for for twelve years. Um, at the CBS station at WCCO, and I was demoted off the anchor desk as a result of this. I actually just left in, in January because I'd never they would never give me my position uh, back, and it was very clear that they were basically embarrassed uh, of me, um, and I was, you know, for the most part put in a closet and really um, couldn't report on the things that I had, you know, spent my entire career reporting on. Uh, so, so, so that's why I left after the the demotion, which sent a clear message of how they they felt about me. But, but, but just backing up, um, this is May 2020. The presidential election is obviously coming up that fall, um, and you know the, there is definitely a push um, by by the left, by the media, to oust uh, President Trump at, at all costs. And I really think that that played a, a large role in in this incident um everybody was was pushing this racist narrative throwing gasoline on the fire quite literally and figuratively from the very beginning um we kind of go almost minute by minute in the beginning of the book i'm talking about that what they're actually saying uh, you know the body cameras are withheld uh for months when it comes to this incident um there's a lot of things that actually just disappear um, that normally are, are public documents, they disappear in this case. And so we're going into that. Um, I think this incident was being framed as one thing on Facebook. 
Um, and a lot of politicians were going along with that. Uh, however, there was just so much more to the story that yes. I knew um, being married to uh, who I'm married to, but also just as, as a journalist. And nobody was asking these questions. And it, it bothered me because I knew that we would live with the ramifications of what was playing out, um, you know, block, block, uh, blocks uh, on fire in Minneapolis. Um, and lawlessness that has continued ever since. And it was really this runaway train that um, that I think many people who had the power to stop uh, could have, but chose not to. So were you ever given a reason for your demotion? Um, you know, at first it was that um, it was a conflict of interest, which I couldn't report on the story, which obviously I I understood, but I could tell as time passed that there was much more, much more to that. We saw in Minnesota the angry mob rule the day. Uh, the angry mob showed up at the television station where I worked uh, during a six o'clock news, demanding that I, you know, be fired. It was a, a couple dozen people um, shouting all sorts of horrible things about me that, you know, they didn't, didn't even have my name spelled right. So they, you know, obviously had no personal connection. But this is how that summer was, right? Um, they have to terrorize and threaten. Um, and, and it worked. I mean, it, it, they showed up at our, our house a couple different times. We had a, a very high profile um, protest in August that summer where um, they beat me and my husband and uh, pinata effigy in our driveway. We were dressed as Klansmen, these pinatas that they made of us. Um, but that was something the local news, including the station uh, where I worked, didn't even cover for three days. It was a state rep candidate. Um, who was beating my pinata. So I thought it was a newsworthy story. This guy's running to be a, a, a state rep. And I thought, well, this just seems insane. Why would we not uh, do this as a story? And I was told, um, I was kind of reprimanded for even pitching it, that it was showing my bias. Um, so it, it took him about three so, days. Somehow, I don't think a black reporter who is involved with, much less married to someone who's involved with the prosecution or BLM, would have been demoted on account of uh, conflict of interest. But we, we see where this is headed. Yeah. So, so yeah. that that got you into independent journalism, like like a lot of people are doing. There's several high-profile kind of local mainstream news reporters that that were forced to go independent, and they're very happy. And now you're, you're with Alpha, but you've done other work, and you, you, you made a book. And you did the work that nobody wants to see. And this is so important. It's so important. And, and we keep talking about this, that you cannot just, even where there is potentially or even likely a degree of wrong that was done, you have to understand exactly what did and didn't happen and the magnitude of it, because we right. have policies and cultural flashpoints created around things that that are based on lies. So so let, let's get to the meat and potatoes of the other side of the story. Um, I think... Our audience, obviously, clearly, at a minimum, we we understand that even in the worst case scenario, Derek Chauvin didn't wake up one day, you know, with the intent of doing this. And to the extent it was brutal, there's no evidence it was racially motivated that if this would have been the same scenario with a white person, um, that it would have been different. Um, the notion that he would get felony murder 22 years, that in any other circumstance, a cop would have gotten that that much is clear that. They wouldn't have gotten that much. It's clear the trial was unfair, and it's clear that it's unprecedented that the junior assisting officers would have been roped into a criminal prosecution. As for, for our listeners who aren't up on this, Thomas Lane, the other officer, was sentenced to three years for aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. Um, uh, officer Kung, 
uh, just recently entered a guilty plea to avoid a jury trial. So he'll probably wind up with with some jail time similar to Thomas Lane. And then Tal, the fourth guy, will allow the judge to decide his case because obviously he doesn't want to buy his jury. So we'll see what happens there. But all four on the hook, that clearly I think everyone knows is 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 racially biased, politically biased. It's it's a political um, trial. It we we would never do it. But you know, to what extent was wrong done? Not wrong done. Start with Derek Chauvin's side of the story himself. Yeah, so this is the first time we're really hearing from him um, at, at all, and we've had uh, many conversations uh, with him. Uh, he is a very by-the-book uh, police officer. That's how he has been described to, to us and kind of how he describes um, himself as well. But they were doing, and, and keep in mind that these two rookie officers, J. Alexander King and Thomas Lane, um, are the, the first people called um to this counterfeit $20 bill at this convenience store in, in Minneapolis that George Floyd passed. Um, but they, they are called um, and they arrive about a half hour, 40 minutes later. And um, it was kind of described that uh, Mr. Floyd is kind of sleeping in, in his car. We, you know, come to find out that um, he had taken drugs and, and take some more during the rest, uh, which is well-documented also something that was, um, I, I think for the most part hidden and not and not talked about. Um, but you know, <laughs> this racial, this whole entire racial story, we're you know discussing. Uh, J. Alexander King is black, and the black officer had more had more to do with George Floyd than Derek Chauvin did. Uh, we didn't even really know, right, that the three other officers were involved uh, for for quite some time because we just see this little clip on on Facebook. And there was a, a reason for that. We have a Hmong American officer, a black officer, uh, Derek Chauvin is married to a woman who's Asian. So I never um, even knew that. Okay. So it's, it's uh, I say it's kind of the United Nations of police calls, but nobody <laughs> yep. wanted to have that conversation. It had to, it had to be black and white. And that was the mayor's narrative. Yep. That was the police chief's narrative uh, from day one. And I think that was very, very dangerous uh, when, you know, the facts weren't there to support that at all. Um, but the officers are talking uh, to us about this MRT uh, that they're that they did on George Floyd. Remember, he's the one who wanted to lay on the ground. He's the one that said, "I can't breathe." Before Derek Chauvin even touched him, he's the one that never said, "Get off me, get off my neck." Um, you know, there's a lot there's a lot in the body cam videos that I think a fraction of the American public has, has yes. even bothered um, to, to watch. But um, so this this um, police maneuver they're doing everybody wanted to have the conversation about chokeholds right and neck restraints and you know that's that's not what this was um the, and also this mrt training these pages of the manual go offline right after this incident because again the narrative is oh this is a you know this is something we've never seen before this training we've never done this before well that's not true that's a lie uh, lies were told in court about that as well it took about three weeks before um these documents came back online so, so um, wait, wait, let, let's just slow it down at the beginning. So when he's arrested, you know, typically you expect, okay, to be handcuffed, put in the back of the car, sent down to the station. Why was it taking so long? Why did that not happen? Yeah, so he's he's resisting from the very beginning. Uh, he's, you know, George Floyd was a very large man. Uh, and um, these officers, you know, T- Tom Lane obviously had some, some height on him, but he also had drugs in his system and, this is how officers are trained. They're trying to get him 
to comply. He's clearly not complying, and this struggle goes on uh, for well over 10 minutes in the back of a, a squad car, and they, you know, and he's asking to, to lay on the ground um, himself. So he, he is not complying. You even have bystanders saying, you know, comply, <laughs> just just listen to him, get in the back of the, the car, but that doesn't happen. So So freeze frame right there. I don't think there's anybody who could disagree with those facts. And you're going to give Derek Chauvin's side of the story, but that part of it seemed to be clear from just the timeline, the body camera. So right away, even even if he did terrible things thereafter, terrible mistakes, right away, it wasn't this malicious desire to, I'm going to go lynch a black man today. Like, no, it was like like police officers increasingly are dealing with because everyone's freaking on drugs all day. Everyone they encounter is. You have a massive guy on drugs. Let let these naysayers see, hey, you, you, you try to apprehend him without injuring the guy, without injuring yourself or anyone else. Hey, you go do it, buddy. But um, that's what happened, and he was resisting. So it was born out of those circumstances. So right off the bat, there was no, like, intent there with felony murder at that moment. It was clearly like, hey, you just called into it, Fine. Okay. So, um, when they get him under, when they get him restrained, so right at that point, why is he not in cuffs and put in the car? Well, I think what's um, interesting to point out too, that Derek Chauvin wasn't even scheduled to work that day. He called into the precinct as he did a lot and volunteered, uh, to work. So, you know, we go about this whole, he, he wasn't planning to go, he wasn't even planning to go to work that day, period. Um, and and he volunteered to he basically you know heard that they were struggling on the scene um, and he was partners with uh, Tu Tao and they decided to to go help these two rookie officers with this arrest after it was clear that George Floyd was not uh, complying so again not even part of the plan to even be at that call at all um, just happened to to pull up and this is the the maneuver they decided uh, to do this MRT so they um, as part of this MRT. Maneuver um, have what's called a, a hobble that basically connects the legs um, to the waist that they decided not to actually put on. So they de-escalate uh, the situation as George Floyd um, is laying there on the, on the pavement, um, and they uh, make another call for for the ambulance to basically up the ambulance time to get to get the ambulance there as soon as possible. We later find out the ambulance is basically parked around the corner because they're worried about. Um, the, the crowd that is forming and the ambulance takes a very long time mm. um, to actually even respond at all. Um, so, And it so should be are, noted, by the way, just I uh, hate to interrupt there, but there yeah. there has already been a trend, and certainly now it's escalated, of not just police being attacked, but but uh, emergency personnel. Um, certainly in New York City, we've seen that a lot. So that would be why they'd yeah. be reluctant to go to the scene. And in, in the actual training documents, um, it talks about if, you know, because everybody was saying, you know, they have to lay um, George, they should have laid him on his, his side. Well, that's if the hobble is applied. In this case, they didn't put the hobble on, so they didn't, there's nothing in the manual that says what to do in that instance beyond wait for the ambulance. And again, I'm talking about a very by-the-book guy, and there's all this Monday morning quarterbacking, but that's how policing is now, right? Like shoulda, woulda, coulda. I'm not a police officer. I make that very clear um, in the in the book. Um, but I also think that, you know, the officers have made it, have made it clear, at least um, to me in these interviews, um, that they had no idea um, what he was on. Um, and I don't think, I don't even think the... <laughs> When the autopsy 
came out. I mean, this was a, a lethal concoction of, of drugs in his his system that clearly uh, played a role. So yeah, I mean, and that's that that's important too. And 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 you know, there's one thing you're restraining someone. The guy's like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. But what if they were saying that even before you laid a glove on them? And then you're so then that's I mean, don't cops always deal with that? They're they're forever saying that you have all these videos like on YouTube years ago. I mean, long before this, that 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 was their M.O. They would always say that I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I mean, this is very common. So they're always encountering that to the average person. It's like, whoa, whoa, that's a crazy thing. The guy's saying it, get off of him. Right. But he was saying that before. And then in retrospect, we, we know that he had a lethal concoction of drugs that that first autopsy that was done, my understanding, a very stellar medical examiner. Um, in Minnesota, uh, performed that. So, okay, so the, the, the knee, the knee. So all people know is the knee was on his neck for nine minutes. Um, is Derek Chauvin, is his, did he tell you, is his case that he was more checking, not pressuring? Meaning, if you, to, to the naked eye, you could have the knee appear to be on the neck, but is that applying lethal pressure or just kind of checking him? Yeah, so actually, this is what the MRT calls for. It's a knee basically on the upper shoulder blade. And the way that the um, the way that the Facebook video, again, is framed, it certainly does appear <laughs> that it's on the neck. But there's no damage to any sort of structures or the neck area at all um, on George Floyd in, in his autopsy. But if you do look at it from a body camera angle and you know, you're honest with yourself, uh, the, the knee is definitely more um, on the shoulder blade just as that um, wow. as that maneuver calls for. So, uh, again, there was a reason, in my opinion, that the body cameras were hidden because they kind of went against that. Well, they definitely went against that whole narrative of the, the Facebook video. Um, and, again, a reason for that to to, to be withheld. And, and even going back to the medical examiner, because I think timing of all of this is very interesting. So the autopsy report is done within 12 hours of George Floyd's death uh, by Dr. Andrew Baker, the Hennepin County medical examiner. Um, and he, he does have a very good reputation. Uh, he does a very thorough job, basically also says that if he would have been anywhere else, George, this would have been an overdose. I mean, those are his words in the documents. We do include all the public documentation um, in the book, which I think is interesting for, for people to see for mm -hmm. themselves and take a look at. Um, but that autopsy, then after he he uh, releases these findings, not publicly, but there there's all this back and forth with the FBI, with uh, county uh, prosecutors, with uh, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, the BCA. There's all these meetings, and this is a week later, when the autopsy is actually released, this is after, you know, block after block of, of damage in, in Minneapolis and destruction. Um, so I would say looking back, it's interesting that what would have happened if they would have been forthcoming with this information 12 hours later? What, you know, what if they would have framed this narrative a little bit more truthfully, that there was more more to this story? I think you can't really help but, but wonder how things perhaps uh, could have been different. Wow. So what what I'm hearing here is obviously from a legal standard, there's a high bar to prove felony murder. I mean, you know, you have to prove intent, but beyond before we even get to the intent, um, you know, because you could injure someone in the process of trying to apprehend them, where you clearly didn't try to kill them, but maybe made a mistake procedurally or even not. But then there's just physically, 
what actually happened. So you have to show that indeed he was murdered by what you're alleging the guy did. So you have a medical examiner that showed on the one hand that there was enough lethality of the mixture of drugs to kill him alone. And on the other hand, in terms of neck damage, it's not there. So, so Liz, how did he get convicted of anything? Well, yeah, we um, we go into great detail. Um, so I call the, the autopsy part of the book the point of no return, because that's really what I felt like it was um, even in the newsroom where I work, too. OK, yeah. we're not going to have any conversations. About I thought it was drugs. over with after that. Yeah, it was just that it was a it would. Um, but also hours after the um, official autopsy report was released, the family released their own autopsy, mm. if you remember. Um, and that was basically uh, the findings were uh, George Floyd died of what you, from what you see on the video. That's an actual quote from that autopsy. And the media called that an independent autopsy. But that was actually two medical uh, examiners, you know, on the family's dime um, basically paid to say that so but that that was the narrative that i think the media okay well this this seems safer well let's go with this autopsy report instead this other this other one was really buried uh, but you know for years i've been reporting about opioid um overdoses in minnesota i mean they've skyrocketed across the country obviously and as soon as i looked at that um you know the toxicology test and such it was very obvious that i mean this 11 nanograms um uh, of fentanyl would <laughs> you know, kill a large animal. I mean, it was, it was a, a horrific amount of drugs in someone's uh, system, but it didn't just, it just seemed like nobody wanted to, to talk about that. We go into wooden chest syndrome, which is, um, there's a lot of information available um, on that. Um, uh, that's out there as well, that I, I personally think um, perhaps played a role too, just with the, the science and matching up the autopsy report and such. But again, conversations that you couldn't have because you're called a racist. I mean, that's, that was just the way it was. It was, you couldn't, you couldn't have any kind of critical thinking. This was black and white and, um, you know, just kind of, just kind of step in line as far, as far as that's concerned. But we do go into great detail of the trial, what's allowed in, what, what isn't. Um, and, and again, we see these lies by omission, um, we, we talked to the officer who arrested George Floyd a year before this incident. Um, he was on the stand, but he, I think he was asked three questions in, in total. Well, he tells the full story of this arrest from 2019 with George Floyd for the very first time. That is so eye-opening in the book. And he also, um, is originally called as a witness for the prosecution, but it's really interesting, I think, for readers to hear what's happening behind the scenes because the attorney general, Keith Ellison, um, you know, is the the head of all of this, of the, the prosecution in this case, and the conversation he's having with this police officer um, who arrested George Floyd in 2019 is very telling. And they quickly didn't want this officer on their side, if you will. So he became the first uh, defense witness um, for, for Derek Chauvin in, in that case. So I think that's a pretty interesting part of the book as well. So so what I mean, what what was his point that he was resisting arrest, you know, several years before and did the same modus operandi? Yeah. So the um, in court, it was limited, basically. Um, so this is about a 20 minute um, encounter. This is a drug investigation that George Floyd is. <laughs> they're doing a, an undercover drug investigation involving uh, George Floyd. They have quite a bit on him in 2019 um, and they go to arrest him. So there's a 20 minute encounter. And that in court is whittled down to about a minute, um, what they can actually show. 
Um, so the, the prosecution is talking about how this is, they want to just call it a traffic stop. They want to frame it as a traffic stop. And this officer is, it's not a traffic stop. This is a felony, you know, <laughs> felony drug investigation. We've been investigating him for months. Um, and as soon as they realized that this officer wasn't going to go along with their narrative, uh, he, he was dismissed and they didn't, you know, they didn't want him to, uh, be a part of it anymore. So, um, Again, the the lies by omission, I think, are, are are pretty clear. But there there are many stunts. I mean, there are twelve to fifteen um, attorneys working on on that side. When you had Eric Nelson, um, basically on his own, <laughs> in in court representing uh, Derek Chauvin. This was a case that Keith Ellison needed to win uh, at all costs. So, I mean, what you're describing is like a magnitude of lie. With with the the magnitude of the consequences of it, almost on par with January sixth, COVID, all the other things we have mentioned, because right now to the average person, when I say the average person, I mean even like someone who would be more right leaning. Um, if they didn't delve into this, Derek Chauvin is synonymous with uttering the word Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. Right? It's mm-hmm. like it's like a, this this retroactive fable that there was some neo Nazi who was running around for years trying to find a, a black. Uh, individual to kill and killed him and and just sat in you know while you know as as the life just sucked out of him when in fact you understand his background you understand uh, uh floyd's background um you understand what police always encounter with belligerent very big and strong people on drugs um and how you know it certainly started by the book what they did why he was on the ground the autopsy results by a stellar medical examiner um, on what actually did happen physiologically. And then, so what, again, Liz, I want you to act as the prosecutor here. What, what are the worst things he did? What, what did he do wrong? Um, Well, I think that, you know, the argument could be made, um, you know, to to roll him over as as Thomas Lane suggested. But again, you know, but that, I, I that's a civil case that, allegation, right? I, I he the deck was stacked against him from from the very beginning. You have to you have to have some kind of intent. And from what Derek has uh, you know told us in interviews and such, there, there it, there's no such thing. <laughs> you know that 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 didn't happen here. Uh, you know, again, according according to him, um, but. You know, and I, I just want to say, too, that sure, I'm married to a, a police officer, um, so this is a little bit more uh, my world. But I really approach this as a journalist, and I think yes. that that's what troubled me most, um, is there just wasn't a lot of that. I mean, I was working with people that they, they're using the hashtag on social media, Black Lives Matter, a day later um, <laughs> after this incident. And I just thought, this is so beyond reckless. Um <laughs> And you know, there, there was no turning back. I mean, even I know we've talked about this before, but you watching uh, Candace and her her team's documentary um, on on Black Lives Matter. Do you think any mainstream media has even picked that up about where the where the money went? And you yeah. know, there's the story of George Floyd, his roommates, uh, George Floyd's family hasn't even come to you know to pick up his belongings uh, from his apartment in St. Louis Park. They haven't towed his car that's been sitting sitting there now for more than two years. Candace did that out of her own. Uh, pocket, but this is—you could easily see how 
the mob moved in. A lot of people were paid to do so. Yes. Uh, to just destroy lives. And there's this, all this collateral damage uh, left in the wake. And, the, and nobody's trying to tie up the loose ends here when we weren't, I don't think, told the, the, the truth from the very beginning. But but I'm still bothered by what you're saying, because I expected you to come on and and kind of, OK, so there's everyone knows the case against him. And then you have in, in Chauvin's word, you know, like, OK, his side. And then you have to kind of be balanced and say, who do you believe? But what bothers me is that if you look at what clearly is the evidence and then even accept what they're alleging, I don't see more than a civil case, much less felony murder. I'm saying I don't even see manslaughter. I, 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 well, I mean, it's been said that he could have started, you know, CPR um, right away. But how would or- he know that if the guy was saying beforehand, I can't breathe, they always do that? Well— and it's also interesting that, you know, he's on, on the body camera videos. You can tell that he is still moving, um, you know, even after it, it looks like on the, you know, his legs are, are still kicking and such. So, yeah, because so it's really, a drug overdose. Right. So he, there's a, and, you know. It, me, it me, does, meaning, meaning even if it's not 100 percent, but certainly in terms of you have to have really beyond a reasonable doubt that the guy right. committed felony murder. I mean, that's the standard we have. I mean, do we have a. Hundred percent that it's impossible that he. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, the first autopsy seems to be a hundred percent because how could you have no neck damage and that have been what killed him? And then at concurrently, you know, the the fact pattern he said he couldn't breathe before and he had the drugs in his body. It was enough to kill him. I I just I I think you and I both know it's not even the felony murder. Had race not been a player created by by the media and and everyone around there, the attorney general, had this been a you know two white people or whatever, I don't think this thing would have gone to civil trial. I mean, who knows? But 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 I'm saying even if I accept that he did, to me it's not clear he did anything wrong. It's not clear. It could be he did. I mean, let me know if you disagree. I'm not seeing definitively that he did anything wrong. But even no, if it would be, it would be more like a civil case, negligence. I, I, I think it's a, a fair argument. But you did see the medical examiner was greatly influenced. Uh, he he said he wasn't. Um, but um, we talk about this in the book. But during the second grand jury in this case, um, where he's asked um, by Eric Nelson, uh, he says, you know, um, have any of have any of the threats influenced your decision making? And um or basically, you know, have you been threatened kind of thing? And uh, Dr. Baker says, I'm going to need to speak to my a- attorney before wow. he answers that. So two hours later, two hours later, he comes back and he says uh, no. But we do see even when you, you know, know all of this and then you watch the trial again, uh, which I think is is quite telling. You can tell that they that Dr. Baker definitely backpedals a, a bit because, again, everybody they're showing up at everybody's home. They're calling everybody's office. That, they're calling this is home. so scary, Liz. They're, they're this is so. Yeah. I, I want to make very clear to our audience, and I know you agree with me, even though, okay, you're married to a cop, but the reality is, you know, my audience knows I'm not so, you know, into cops now. You know, I have my own grievances and what they're being used to enforce. I think some were legitimately brutal on January 6th, in fact, in, in reality. So I'm not, I have no, I don't know Derek Chauvin or the other guys are. I don't care. 
Um, I know the reaction to it was wrong. The policies created were wrong. The rioting was wrong. That I have a dog in the fight. But to somehow exonerate Chauvin, I don't have a dog in that fight. It doesn't, I don't care. It doesn't have anything to do with me. But it is scary as hell to think, think that we now live in a country where mob rule, you could take someone that totally might even be patriotic, have be a great person, and mob rule, not fact patterns, could determine his life, and potentially that could happen to any cop. And it's not just cops. I mean, Liz, you know this. This is spilling over to civilians. So when you have civilian encounter self-defense situations, again, race and mob rule will play a role, not fact. And that's... Is is that is that kind of what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, I think you're, you know you're hitting the nail on the head. That's that's why I say everybody should care about this case because mob justice is not justice. And as as an American, <laughs> I think that's why you know we're brought up in this country that you know the the greatest country in the in the world, right? Where we believe in freedom. And and I honestly think that you know this case a hundred percent is why you're seeing um, police officers leave in in droves. I'm sorry, you can fo- follow policy. Um, and be thrown in prison for it. Um, so I think there really is a lot to be, uh, you know, said here. And, and, and when you talk about what's happening behind the scenes in the judici- judicial system and the way all of these branches of government were working together, it, I think it really should scare uh, anybody who, who really takes a look uh, at this case. So talk about the appeal. How could he not, at a minimum, get a trial in a different venue? And is there a well, likelihood it, that would happen? You know, I <laughs> I wish I would, could say that, um, you know, that that will change. And uh, but I don't see things changing um, in, in Minnesota anytime uh, soon with that, uh, even after these what happened on Monday uh, with um, former officer King and, and Tao. The, the messaging was basically, OK, we're going to put this um, in the rearview mirror. Uh, this is a dark chapter that we're about to close. And this was the messaging um, from a lot of different groups and politicians and such. But I don't think there's, you know, a lot of closure for, for police officers, uh, for people with yes. critical thinking skills. Um, <laughs> um, I, I do think he does stand a, a chance of an appeal. Um, Derek does down the road, but I don't. But we I, all I, know what's going to determine that. It's not jurisprudence. Right, right. It's not technicalities. It's not factual errors, evidence that was wrongly denied. It's going to be, oh my gosh, what is the reaction? And that is the disillusion of a democracy, of a republic. I mean, that is, and 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 I'm even more convinced of it now, Liz, because after watching January 6th, which occurred later, that we now know there are people that not only didn't do anything, but they were literally protecting others from the violence, often of what appear to be some sort of provocateurs um, or whoever they were, or frankly, some police officers that were being very violent. Um, They did nothing. And you know they are being prosecuted all because of the mob. There's no – facts don't matter. We have habeas petitions being denied – of people that lost 50 pounds in jail because they have celiac and they, they won't allow them to pay for their own food. Things that, that the ACLU would have went to town with years ago, and they still do. I mean, I mean, they, they, they get everything they want in prison. Beating, solitary confinement. I mean, even Elizabeth Warren spoke out against that at one point. I mean, 
it, it is we don't have the rule of law. It it scares me because we all want to know like okay, we all know that if our guy does something wrong, then they're gonna get disproportionately punished, and their thing does something that they won't be like that. We know already, and that was that was old news. But you want to at least know that if I'm careful not to do anything wrong, I I won't land up in jail and have my life destroyed or have a mob. You know, even if I'm out of jail, I couldn't live normally anyway. But isn't it true that if I'm a cop, I want to be able to look at a situation and say, aha, he clearly did this, which was stupid, wrong, even evil, and I know I'm not going to do that. I could do my police work, and I know I'm not going to sit and – I'm not going to sit and dig my knee into someone's neck and choke them to death for for nine minutes. Yeah, anyone could say that. But in fact, that's not what happened, certainly not to that degree. So let me ask you, Liz, could a cop, could your husband and everyone he knows say, look, I'm not like that. I could do my police work and no, I'm not going to be prosecuted. No, I don't. I I don't. (laughs) Right. And, you know, remember, this is also a profession that, okay, we want body cameras and, you know, we want transparency, right? This is what, after Ferguson, that was the reason for the rioting in 2014, allegedly, right? Because we didn't have body cams. Okay, so we have body cameras uh, rolling, all four of them rolling, and we don't want to see them. And nobody's wondering why, Um, you know, and we, um, at the time in Minneapolis, had a black police chief. Uh, He, you know, this is what... This was supposed to be about was uh, transparency, but there was nothing transparent about this. And there's a reason there's a reason for that. Um, They really got away from themselves as far as I'm concerned. Um, And then when the facts didn't line up with their narrative, uh, they needed to to do something about it. And the media basically acted as a marketing agency. Journalists turned into activists during that summer. And, you know, we're all just supposed to now forget about it. But again, we'll live with the consequences um, for a generation, I feel like here in in Minnesota. So that's why I needed to put the book together to kind of make me sleep at night. I think uh, to just point <laughs> point the blame where I I feel like it belongs because um, it it really hadn't uh, been there before. What other interviews did you conduct that you feel are important for people to read? Yeah, there's um, quite a bit in the the beginning of the book about the planned surrender of the third police precinct. Uh, something also I think that the local news forgot about very quickly so again this is this was a plan um brilliant plan right why wouldn't you um sacrifice the police precinct uh to to protesters it's still to this day a head scratcher uh but when these um when these officers talk about it it's just unbelievable um the details that come out and we have quite a few pictures from inside of you know what this looked like but Uh, Nobody thought this was a good idea. In fact, everybody thought it was a joke when they were first told by their um, supervisors that this was going to happen. But again, this is this is the messaging of the the city. So pack up your belongings. We're going to go ahead and give them the building. And we think this will basically be a reparation in a way. Oh, my gosh. um, I mean, mean, how is that not straight up black supremacism? I'm just saying, like, you straight – I mean, again, we know the truth. It had nothing to do with race, but they made it about race that because the individual happened to be black, this is what needs to be done. This is what needs to be done. So if you have a black officer, you know, allegedly kill a white individual, no one would say, we need to surrender the police station, burn it to the ground. I mean, right. this is crazy. Uh, ab- absolutely crazy. And not only that, so the city provides – 
um, transportation for their belongings. So the police officers uh, in the afternoon that day on Thursday, uh, their belongings are packed into a um, city vehicle. And then the city sends um, a bus for the officers who are trapped inside um, later that night. But that bus is parked a half a mile away. So they make the officers run through thousands in the angry mob, throwing things at them and such for a half a mile to the bus. And then the bus is actually late to pick them up. So this is the this is the grand surrender of the the third police precinct. And we have one officer who actually wrote his family um, a goodbye letter being trapped inside the police precinct because he didn't think he'd even make it out. You know what that reminds me of? I, you remember in 2000 in Ramallah, Israel, the the Hamas lynching of the two right. soldiers? Yeah. That's what that reminds me of. Um, well, that's what these officers, many of them have combat experience, and they still, you know, to this day can't believe that this happened on American soil. American not- soil. It's like it's like Gaza or Ramallah, like, you know, those areas. Right. Um, oh, my gosh. I... Uh, I I don't know what to say. I mean, oh, aftermath of the burning down of the police station. So we know that the the ringleader, this this Bryce Williams, got 27 months. Um, that's it. Just so two years. And in yep. Minnesota, that means you get out after a year and no yep. pretrial holding. And the judge said, you're fundamentally a good person who just made a mistake. I sympathize with you. Um, mm-hmm. How many people? So So just looking at the aerial footage, you should have January 6th type of numbers like 800 people arrested how many were uh how many were charged well that's that's really a good question and frankly frankly a number that's hard hard to get at i'll just say it's very single digits right yes i mean i think you know at one point it was like 12 or something i mean it was okay (laughs) yeah and most of them got nothing but that that's that's the first net of being maybe charged but um you know wow um Right. I I don't know what to say. I mean, I just, you know, don't get the book. I mean, you need to get it, but don't get it. You'll need blood pressure meds. Um, folks, they're lying. The media, the left, and the death of George Floyd. The easiest way is to go to thelieexposed.com by, by Liz Collin. Follow her at Liz Collin on, on Twitter. Liz, we're out of time, but this was very enlightening as much as enraging. Uh, you're going to be our go-to person in Minnesota. There's certainly a lot of interesting political developments there. Um, thanks for doing what you did because because nobody wants to touch this and it needs to be told just like COVID, just like J6, just like the background with the whole Ukraine response. Um, all of these, whenever you see a sudden unified cultural, political, economic, geopolitical changing policy born out of an event, you really need to study what that event was. And that's what we did today. Liz, keep up the good work, all right? Thank you very much. You as, you as well. Happy to be back on any time. Keep up the good fight. Take care. So, folks, it's kind of eerie. We started the show with a lot of excitement, enthusiasm, great times. And then, I don't know about you, but personally, I'm just crushed. I'm crushed for the individuals involved. I'm crushed for the implications of what that means, even though I know it and I've been saying it for two years, but it still hurts. And I did that on purpose. I did that to show you the contrast between potentially politically the good news, but in actuality what is and is still and will still be happening unless we convert that potential into kinetic 
and we don't just tweet and do the politics and all oh, Republicans win, but demand very specific policy outcomes. We're going to need to do that on policing, on crime, in in states. Um, all degree of racism needs to be extirpated from law and society. I know it sounds very novel, like equal under the law that race should never be a factor in any legal proceedings, period. However you would treat a person of this race, you would treat the person of another race. Is it that freaking hard? Um, I don't know what more to say. My brain is kind of mush now. I mean, we're, we're really over time. So obviously, as always, we've left a lot of material from this week on the table. But I'm just going to end with this. A longtime listener, Fred, from Virginia, sends me an email and just, just to, he made a very important point to clarify this. I mean, I'm actually going to, to give it over the way he did. You know, I talk about how our country has become a maggot-infested carcass, our culture, our economy, our government. It's not worth saving. We need a national divorce. We need to start something new, uh, anchor it at least in the areas that are less damaged and, and rebuild from there. I want to make very clear I'm not casting aspersions on what it means to be an American in the way our founders conceived what the flag represents, what our Constitution did represent, um, that we're somehow going to cede that. And I think he makes he, – he, he writes, I was reading your article on the travesty in Minneapolis, what I just talked about with the settlement to the rioters, in, part- in particular your line about being pepper sprayed at the Capitol for singing God Bless America. And it connected with what you have said in recent podcasts. And, you know, just talks about just kind of paraphrasing how I, I, I think I mentioned I took the flag in from, from my home. I took it. It was hanging outside and how it no longer represents us. And he made an important point that, th- that to be clear, We are and will always be the real Americans, not the left, not the transnational globalist oligarch dirtbags. We are the ones who have worn that flag on our shoulder and literally suffered for it. And and, and Fred himself, by the way, is a a veteran. We are the ones who on Memorial Day don't enjoy a day off. We spend a day thinking about specific people we've buried and lost. America is ours. It is the left that doesn't belong. That is the reason you have J6 political prisoners standing and singing the Star Spangled Banner in jail. The thing called America and the symbols that represent it, the very name, belong to us because we are the ones who paid for it. The Fourth Reich are the usurpers, like the Jacobins in the French Revolution who desecrated French cathedrals. And he noted it should be instructed how... Often the Fourth Reich media and politicians repeat the lies that they are defending the nation against insurrectionists. Playing into their narrative is foolish. No, he's trying to say, don't, don't give off the impression, like, I, I like to say we're the revolutionaries, and I just use that intellectually, that you can't have a con- conservationist mindset to conserve the status quo. But he's right that we are not an insurrection. They are the ones who aren't Americans and should be called out as such. They're the dissidents. We are we the people and not them. They are the other. Let them hoist the rainbow flag over the People's Republic of Gaia or, or Baal or Malok. 
or whatever. It is why one of the most powerful recurring ideas in Kurt Schlichter's fiction series about national divorce is that the red states retain the American flag. Stars and stripes, just minus a few of the stars. While the blue states are the ones left to found a new state with a new flag and a new name, despite keeping maybe the physical location of what was formerly called Washington, D.C. And it might sound like semantics, but I think, thank you, Fred, for setting me straight and all of us, and I, I think that's a very important point. What we need is a national divorce. But what we're doing is just going to a stronger position where we could live out the American dream and what the American flag represents. Let them be the ones stuck with the crushing debt. That's why I say, hey, I don't need to fix that. Go, go eat it, buddy. You have the debt. You have Antifa. You have the rioters. You have all the murderers that you let out of prison. You have all the illegal aliens. You have all the Islamists from Afghanistan. Go eat it. Go enjoy it. You have a military that's about gender bending. Go eat it. Go kiss China's rear end. Go take the WEF. All of that. You could have it. That's not seeding America. That's antithetical to America. This is our country. And really, again, ideally, we shouldn't seed an inch of land. But you need a degree of pragmatism that, that's, that's, that's uh, uh, just... A, a mindlessly naive goal at this point. Because, like I said, frankly, name me a single state that were properly living out the American mandate. Some are getting better, really mainly one or two, but not yet. So the notion that somehow we're going to raise our flag over San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and New York City is is a pipe dream. It's a pipe dream to even try to do what we're trying to do that's all I mean. I mean it more from a pragmatic standpoint, not from a symbolism standpoint that, oh, we're no longer America, you know, they're America and we're breaking away. They have broken away, but they're breaking us in the process. And that's what we need. We need to save ourselves. But I think that's a terrific point. You know, hey, like what flag should we use if we ever fulfill our dream? Fred's right. Let's use the stars and stripes. We'll just cut out some of their stars, so our stars will shine so ever brighter. Folks, we've had a terrific week. Next week's obviously going to be an important, pivotal week, but the week after the election will be even more important. We'll be there to cover the issues that matter, the way they matter, the time they matter. You can email me, danielharowitz at startmail.com. I'll let you know if I'm back up at RM Conservative on Twitter. Till Monday, have a terrific weekend, and God bless you all.